All right, everyone, this is your Forge program lecture on the Mosaic Covenant and Sinai. Let me do a little housekeeping for us right quick. You hopefully are working on your doctrinal statements, your reading drama of scripture, and you are working or working to catch up on your scripture memory. Like we've been telling you, um, the scripture memory will be crucial for an assignment you'll have in the spring. If you find yourself far behind on that scripture memory, when you get to the spring, it will be a very, very difficult assignment. I promise you. So if you have not been doing the scripture memory, that's, that's okay. Work hard to just kind of retrace your steps. These are great passages to memorize. Um, continue to read drama of scripture. Hope you're finding that helpful. And then the last thing that I would point out to you is your doctrinal statements. If you have not been doing your doctrinal statements or started working on them, start working on them now. Talk. You can talk with the other people in your group. It can be a conversational project for you. So talk with them uh, and let us know if you have any questions along the way. Today, we're looking at the Mosaic Covenant, focusing specifically on what happens after the Exodus event at Mount Sinai. Now, last week with Caroline, you guys had the opportunity to think through Exodus and a paradigm and pattern for salvation. And today, we're going to rely on that background, and we're going to kind of keep moving forward in uh, exploring, okay, what does it actually mean to live in the presence of God? So I'll do this lecture like I've done the other ones. I have kind of three parts to my lecture. I'm going to record it as one whole for audio and for video, like one kind of unit, and then you'll watch this or listen to it. I strongly encourage you to do it in one sitting. But if you need to take breaks, there will be kind of some breaks built in. Um, I would encourage you to have your Bible out and to have a pen and a notepad. Um, I've attached the slides that have a lot of the quotes or uh, scripture citations, or if there's something that I said really specifically, um, it's all in those slides. Uh, so you can check out the slides. Um, and if you have any questions about the lecture, bring them to the Zoom Q&A this coming Tuesday night at eight o'clock. And uh, those have been great Q&A so far. So I look forward to it. So let's jump in. The main point for this whole lecture tonight is this. The life of God's dynasty, the life of God's people, you might say, revolves around the presence of God in their midst. The life of God's people revolves around the presence of God in their midst. Okay. There's an incredible poem that I love by Gerard Manley Hopkins. He was a Catholic priest and a poet. And the poem is really a meditation on the way that the world and everything that is in it is constantly telling a story. Um, Hopkins begins with nature. He talks about kingfishers catching fire, dragonflies drawing flame. And then he means, uh, moves to talking about um, stones ringing, hung bells swinging. And then he focuses his attention on mankind. And he says, and he asks, what do we do? Each mortal thing, each human thing, does one thing and the same. Selves goes itself. Myself, it speaks and spells, crying, what I do is me, for that I came. If you get a chance, you should read the whole poem. It's beautiful. Um, I'll include a link to a video in the email that I sent out. And it's a beautiful rendition of the poem. Um, the last part of the video can kind of get a little weird. So once the poem is done, just ignore the weird guy who comes on to start talking about it. Okay. But it's the, the only one I could find that's, that's good. So watch the video. But when the weird guy gets on and starts talking, if you watch it, take it or leave it. I'm making no referral or recommendation on it, but you can just stop it after the poem. But the poem itself is beautiful. 
humans by nature selves. We live radically centered on our own persons and purposes, but Hopkins doesn't leave us there. He turns the attention of the poem. So even though the self goes itself, myself, it speaks and spells crying, what I do is me for that I came, but then he turns and he says, the just man justices, keeps graces that keeps his goings graces, acts in God's eye, what in God's eye he is, Christ for Christ plays in 10,000 places. See, Hopkins turns our attention to see a new life beyond mortal selves, just selving, acting out their own self. This life that Hopkins is talking about is the Christian life. It's not centered on self, but on seeing God and seeing ourselves in light of God. So why am I talking about this? Because when we come to Mount Sinai, We stand among Israelites who have just been freed from roughly 400 years of bondage and slavery in Egypt. The center of their life had been the daily toil of forced labor in the service of Pharaoh, who the whole nation of Egypt worshipped as a false god. Their life was not their own. It revolved around the orders of Pharaoh, orders that oppressed the people of Israel. They were surrounded by false stories in Egypt, false gods, false worship, false practices, false beliefs about the world. So when we get to Sinai, which is, according to most scholars, about three months after the Exodus event, we are witnessing the restoration of God's presence dwelling in the midst of God's people. That's what's happening. Sinai, and then in the tabernacle, which as we'll come to find out, the tabernacle is really just a mobile version of Mount Sinai. In this moment, God is reinstituting the dwelling of his presence with his people in a way that has not been since the garden, which is crazy when you think about it. It's not that God hasn't been present in the world. It's that the presence that he is about to undertake in the midst of his people is of a kind that has had no parallel in the story of scripture so far, except the garden. And as Hopkins' poem indicates, the real change in Israel, the real change in people comes when they enter into participation with God in God's world. When they begin to act out in God's eye, what in God's eye they are. And it's only when that happens, when the presence of God is the beating heart of the individual and corporate life of God's people that they can act out the person and work of Christ, that they can be marked by the presence of God in such a palpable and significant way that Christ can play in 10,000 places through the eyes and the faces of those who follow him. So this is what we're going to consider. We're going to consider three things, two places and one person. That's the lecture. That's how the lecture breaks down. Two places and one person of the drama of the Mosaic Covenant. We're going to look at the mount. We're going to look at the man. And we're going to look at the mobile mountain. So we're going to look at the mount, which is Mount Sinai. We're going to look at the man, who is Moses. Then we're going to look at the mobile mountain, which is the tabernacle. Okay. Main point for the whole lecture is this. The life of God's people revolves around the presence of God in their midst. Okay. So let's begin with the mount. Got my Starbucks water here. Any, anybody ever go through the drive-through at Starbucks just to get this water? My wife thinks it's weird, but I do it. Um, okay, so the mount. 
when we get to Exodus 19, we find ourselves at the foot of Mount Sinai. And that's kind of where we're going to be uh, starting tonight. And we're not going to go verse by verse, though there are some passages that I am going to read in their entirety. But Exodus 19 is the beginning of the uh, Sinai story. And it's hard to understand the significance of what is happening at Mount Sinai. Um, it, it cannot be overstated how significant Sinai is for the history of Israel, for the story of God's people. Um, in this account, God is coming down to meet with his people. He is descending upon the mountain in fire and smoke, like his leading of the people out of Egypt in Exodus 13 and his appearance to Moses in Exodus 3. Um, there's a connection to Eden at Sinai, because at Sinai, we see God renew his promise to Adam and Eve in the garden, right? While God is going to secure the promises of the covenant he made to Abraham, the enjoyment of these blessings among Israel will be contingent on their obedience. And so you can think about the, the, the covenant at Sinai as a bit of a, um, it's a further unfolding of the covenant with Abraham. Let me give you an example of, of maybe how this plays out just right here where you can see it in the Bible, because it might help you to understand this, because I think this is an area where there's a ton of confusion and how you understand this will be a critical way that you begin to read through the Pentateuch and the whole of the Old Testament. OK, so Exodus 20, you know, this is the chapter that contains the Ten Commandments. That's probably the title above the chapter number in your Bible. And look at Exodus 20. Actually, you know what? No, hold on. We got to go further back than this. Exodus 19. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, now, here's what I want you to hear. This is why I went back. Before any of the law is given, because Exodus 20 is going to be the beginning of the giving of the law, which in many ways continues throughout the rest of the Pentateuch from this point forward. Before any of that, what does God tell Moses? He says this, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now stop. So what does God tell Moses to tell the people of Israel? He tells them, to tell them the story. Verse four, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. God's saying, I rescued you. I redeemed you. I brought you out of Egypt. That's exactly what I told Abraham I would do. It's exactly what I told Jacob to do. It's exactly what I told Joseph I would do. It's exactly what I told Moses would do. And now I'm telling you, you saw me do it. You all just experienced that. You remember how the Red Sea was split in two? You remember how all of Pharaoh and his army was swallowed up? You remember the plagues? You remember all of that? I did that because I'm faithful to my covenant. Okay? Now, he tells them that. Now, keep in mind, he didn't shout at them when they were slaves in Egypt. He didn't say, 
Israel, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, I will bore, I will bear you on eagles' wings and bring you to myself. That's not what he says. He does that. He redeems, he rescues, he frees, he delivers. And then verse five, now, therefore, so in light of all that, in light of my rescue of you, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. See, what's happening with Moses is not something different than the covenant of grace that's inaugurated with Abraham. It's a further unfolding of it. God doesn't shout down at Abraham's children enslaved in Egypt and say, if you obey me, I'll rescue you. He rescues them and then says, now in light of me rescuing you, obey me, obey me. And there are real blessings and curses that attend to obeying and disobeying God. But do you know what they don't do? They do not invalidate God's rescue of his people. God rescues the people of Israel. Look at Exodus 20. You'll see this again. So before the giving of the Ten Commandments, what do you hear? This often gets left out, but I don't think the Ten Commandments should be printed without this in front of it. Exodus 20, and God spoke all these words saying, and what does he say? It doesn't go to verse three, you shall have no other gods before me. Look in your Bible. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. What's he saying? I rescued you. Then he begins to give them the commandments. Then he begins to give them the law. Now, why am I telling you all this? I'm telling you this because the covenant that God made with Abraham was what? The severed sacrifice and the smoking pot that goes between them, the presence of God. God has already told Abraham that for him and for his descendants, his heirs, the spiritual Israel that is faithful and righteous because of God's great work, for those people, God has already told them, guess what? All the covenant blessings are secured by me, and I will pay the consequences of all the covenant curses. So when we think about what's happening here, the law, when we read all of the law that we find in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, Deuteronomy, the things that we find sometimes maybe even troubling about the law, it's an important reminder to us initially that the law is not given before grace, but grace is given before the law, okay? And law, the law just makes us increasingly aware of our need for grace while also giving us an incredible roadmap for how to live in God's world in the midst of God's presence. So, at Sinai, God renews his promise to Adam and Eve in the garden. You are my people. Uh, my presence is going to dwell in your midst. You are to be to me a kingdom of priests. What is that? They're, they're to be priests like Adam and Eve were, uh, stewarding, showcasing, proclaiming, cultivating the presence of God uh, in the life of God's world. And this is exactly what God tells Israel that they're going to do. So, when Israel does this, when Israel obeys God, do you know what happens? They win battles. They take land. They enjoy God's bounty. When they disobey, do you know what happens? They lose battles. They lose land, and they receive God's judgment. Here's what I want you to see here. At the beginning of Sinai, we're discovering this. Israel wasn't qualified to be in relationship to God by virtue of their obedience. Israel was not qualified to be in relationship with God by virtue of their own obedience. God's invitation into relationship with Israel was the foundation of their obedience. God's redemption, deliverance, rescue, salvation of Israel was the foundation of their obedience. That being said, when they disobeyed God, they did not enjoy the blessings of covenant relationship with God. And this introduces a very significant distinction 
that I'm going to make here. And then we're going to spend a ton of time on when we get to the spring on our lecture with union with Christ. When we think about our relationship or fellowship with God, there are two crucial words we need to understand, union and communion. As covenant participants, we know that our disobedience doesn't disqualify our belonging to God, but it does disrupt our communion with God and the blessings that come with that communion. So our union with God is unbreakable and it's unshakable because it's sealed, secured, and saved by God and God alone. It, salvation is God's to grant. When he grants it, you can't lose it. It wasn't yours to gain. It's not yours to lose. Israel was rescued by God. Israel belonged to God as Abraham's descendants. Their covenant relationship with God was not something that they could control. Now, they could be obedient to God's covenant or they could be disobedient. But when Israel was disobedient to God's covenant, do you know what? Their disruption of all the blessings that come with participation and obedience to God, they were disrupted. So your union with God cannot be broken but your communion with God can be disrupted. And that is a crucial way of understanding what happens in the Pentateuch, in the Old Testament, the story of scripture, our union with God, when God saves us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, when that is secured, it's unbreakable, okay? But we can disrupt our enjoyment of all of the blessings that God has for us in this union. Those can deepen and those can be disrupted by obedience or disobedience. And that's what we find with Israel. So there's a connection to the garden. God has told Israel, you're going to live in my presence. You're going to reflect my purposes in the world, and you're going to fill the world with image bearers. He said that to Adam and Eve. He's saying that here to Israel on the foundation of grace, of rescue. But it's also connected, Sinai is also connected to the Exodus event, which it's like, you're thinking, duh, it happened right after the Exodus event. But there's a unique way in which it is. In the Exodus event, God said to Israel, that's not your story. And in the Sinai event, he's tell telling to Israel, this is your story. Remember who you are, right? So the Sinai narrative is the, if the Exodus event is God calling Israel out of something, Sinai is God calling them into something. And this is, again, a, a paradigm. We saw it with Abraham. He's called out of Ur, in, out of his pagan past, in to a present faithfulness to God in the land that God's going to give him. Okay? So this is true for Israel in the Exodus event. They've been, for 400 years, indoctrinated, catechized, formed uh, among false gods, false practices, false worships, false beliefs in a land that wasn't theirs under tyranny of a Pharaoh. The Sinai event is God restoring the people of Israel, retelling their story. You know, what we read in Exodus 19, tell Israel that this is what happened, right? Um, Exodus so far has been a tour de force in demonstrating the power of God, in demonstrating Yahweh's superiority over the false gods of Egypt. I'm sure Caroline talked with you about this, but the plagues are not trivial things. The plagues are there to demonstrate that Yahweh is greater than the false gods of Egypt. Now, this is important because 
Israel is being asked to trust this God to lead them in to the land that was promised to their forefathers. This land is already filled with other people who also have false gods. So what's going to be the source of their spiritual power? Well, it's going to be that the presence of the God who triumphed over the false gods of Egypt, this great global empire at the time, is going with us and going among us. Egypt had oppressed Israel for hundreds of years, all the while selling them a false pagan story that there were countless gods who deserved their worship. Now, Israel at Sinai, God is telling them, those false gods, you see how I triumphed over them? Let me tell you who I am. Let me tell you who you are. Let me tell you where you come from. You come from Abraham and Jacob and Joseph. You come from these forefathers and their gods were not the false gods of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God, Exodus 20 verse two. And because of that, I rescued you because I'm faithful to my covenant promises. Subsequently on the foundation of my faithfulness to you, obey me, obey me. At Sinai, the God who has rescued his people tells them that he's now going to take up residence among them. The God who has freed his people is now saying, I'm going to live among you. See, covenant participants like Israel, like us, are not just brought out of their pagan past, but they come under the dominion of God as he takes up dwelling in them. Israel is freedom is freed from slavery in Egypt in order to become slaves of Yahweh. Leviticus 25, 55, for it is to me that the Israelites are slaves. This servitude is one of justice and holiness. So God, Yahweh, the one who cut covenant with Abraham, is faithful to his covenant promises in the Exodus event. He rescues his people, and on the foundation of that rescue and that covenant faithfulness that God exercises to Israel, he is telling them at Sinai, this is who I am, this is who you are, this is what I'm going to do in your midst, and this is how you must live now. Sinai is an incredibly important event in the history of redemption. It's an incredibly important event in understanding the theological structure of the Bible. It's an incredibly important event in the history of the world. So when we think about the concept of covenant, you remember a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the covenant with Abraham, we talked about a broad and a narrow definition of covenant. Broad is the revelatory dimension of covenant. Covenant is the means by which God decides to reveal himself. That he reveals himself by way of covenant relationship. That's the broad. The narrow is the covenant by uh, covenant is the means by which God has chosen to save his people, to rescue his people. And we looked a lot at the covenant with Abraham, and now we're going to be hearing about the covenant with Moses, or the Mosaic covenant, or the covenant at Sinai. Sometimes it's called the Sinaitic covenant. And you should ask the question: Is this covenant new? Is the covenant with Moses new? Now. There are times in which in our teaching in the Forge program, I'm, I'm telling you something that's kind of settled for all Christians everywhere, like our definition of the Trinity. That's something that like, there's not really any dispute over that. So it's not something that I can say, there's multiple opinions and views on this within the Christian community. There's not. On this matter, there is. And I have to acknowledge that to you. I'd be happy to talk about other views of the Mosaic Covenant, but I am only going to teach the view that I hold to, which I think is the strongest view. So when we ask the question, is the Mosaic Covenant new? I think a faithful answer to that is yes, kind of, 
or yes and no. Having set Israel free from their bondage in Egypt, a work he accomplished by his own unconditional love and grace based on his covenant promise entrusted to Abraham and Abraham's offspring, God now gathers his people at Sinai to tell them what covenant participation will, after Exodus will look like. Um, Chris Wright, Christopher Wright, in his book, The Mission of God, he says, we need to recognize the priority of grace in an Old Testament theology of mission. Obedience to the law was based on and was a response to God's salvation. Exodus has 18 chapters of redemption before a single chapter of law. That's, that's in a nutshell, that's why I hold the view that I do, is that there are some who would tell you that the Mosaic Covenant is an entirely new covenant in the history of redemption, or it's a reinstitution fully of the covenant with Adam and Eve, which is sometimes referred to as the covenant of works. The covenant of works, that if you obey God, you are blessed. If you disobey God, you are cursed. That's a shorthand version of the covenant of works. That's the covenant that most Christian theologians believe was operative in the garden. Some believe it is reinstituted in the covenant with Moses. I do not take that view. I don't think that's a strong view. And I think that Chris Wright's perspective here is exactly right which is that before there is any mention of law or a reinstitution of a workspace covenant in Exodus, there are 18 chapters of God unconditionally keeping his covenant promises to Abraham. On the foundation of that, we have to acknowledge that the God's covenant with Moses does come with stipulations. Like, it's very clear. Like, you've probably read it, or in your Bible reading plans, you've gotten into it where you're like, whoa, like, or we're talking about cleaning hands and what kind of clothes we can wear, what kind of food we can eat and where we can go and what we can touch and what we can do and what we can say and when we can say it. And you might think like, it seems really clear that God has like some real consequences and stipulations for either obeying or disobeying. Like they're spelled out in some of these passages. So God's covenant with Moses does come with stipulations. The law, according to the New Testament, it didn't merely instruct the people, it revealed their utter need for the grace of God. It was both tutor and tyrant, depending on the heart by which one approached it. So in short, in the covenant with Moses, in particular, the laws that were folded into this covenant, God is instructing the people of Israel on how the presence of God can once again dwell in the midst of God's people. The dwelling that God is taking up among the people of Israel after the Exodus event will be nearer than anything experienced since Eden. But the world is sick with sin. So really, in many ways, the covenant with Moses or the law is really trying to answer the question, how will those who are sick with sin in a broken world draw near to the presence of God? Well, by pursuing holiness in all things. So the Ten Commandments, the whole of the law, these are tied into God's work of redemption in the people of Israel. Um, they are not a break in God's covenant with grace. They're not a disruption in God's covenant with grace. The Mosaic covenant is not new entirely. It's new in that it is a further unfolding of the covenant that God already cut with Abraham. The covenant with Moses is not replacing the covenant with Abraham. It's not deleting the covenant with Abraham. It's not forgetting the covenant with Abraham. It's unfolding in greater specificity 
and detail that if God is going to live with his redeemed and rescued and yet still broken by sin people, if his presence is going to be in their midst, then even though their relationship is not contingent on their obedience, their ability to enjoy the benefits of that relationship are. Now, we're going to talk more about that in a minute. So I just want you to kind of just know that if, if you think, is the covenant with Moses new? The answer is yes and no. No, and that it does not replace the covenant with Abraham. Yes, and that it is a further unfolding of the details of what that relationship will look like in a world broken by sin. So when we think about the Ten Commandments, which in some ways function as like a shorthand summation of the whole law, covenant participation is really tied to obedience. And the Ten Commandments are uh, a distillation of the law. The law is a lot more expansive. If you've read the Pentateuch, those first five books, you know there's a lot of law. And the Ten Commandments are a synthesis or summary of kind of the bedrock principles that are at the foundation of the rest of the law. If God's people were going to participate in God's purposes and reflect God's presence in God's place, they would need a code to live by. And the Ten Commandments are that code. Now, they're not everything that God has for his people, but they are the essentials and they are the bedrock for everything else. So I want to pause here. The big takeaway from this section is this. At Sinai, God remember, uh, reminds Israel who they are. They are the children of his covenant promise to Abraham. At Sinai, God tells Israel, this is who I am. This is who you are. This is what I have done. This is how you are going to live. That's what God tells Israel at Sinai. Now, if you were waiting for a break to go to the bathroom, or maybe you need to pause this because something has come up, this would be a good time to do that. We've been talking about the mount. Now we're going to move to talking about the man, really focusing in on the mediatorial work of Moses. So this would be a good time to pause. But if you're not going to pause, we're going to keep going. So Flip over to Exodus 32 through 34, because you're going to need to be there to really see this in kind of clear relief. So we talked about the Mount, which is Mount Sinai, but there is a significant man involved right now in this part of the story, and that man is Moses. Now, we're going to introduce a new word here. It may not be new to you, but it's probably new in the scope of the FORGE program so far. Moses serves as a mediator a mediator. If you just can't imagine how to spell that, I'll spell it for you. M-E-D-I-A-T-O-R, mediator. Moses serves as a mediator. Now, what is a mediator? Now, I'm going to give you a quote here from Louis Burkhoff. You don't have to write this down exactly. It's in the slides that are attached to the email. So find it there. Louis Burkhoff says that a mediator was man's representative with God. He had the special privilege of approach to God and of speaking and acting on behalf of the people or in behalf of the people. So the key phrase there is a mediator is a representative with God. That's the role that Moses is playing at this point in the story. Broadly, um, the biblical picture of mediator is fleshed out in many different ways. I'm just going to highlight four. I could have gone to a lot, but these are four that we've already encountered in the narrative. Um, and I just want to point out how they mediate, because this word is not just confined to Moses. There are many mediators in the Bible, the perfect of which being the Son of God, Jesus Christ. But here are four we've already encountered in the story. 
The first is Adam. Adam and Eve, they were to mediate the presence of God and his purposes to the world, meaning they were put into the garden to represent God to the world and to extend God's presence through multiplication and cultivation into the life of the world. We saw that in Genesis 1, 27 through 30. Then you have Abraham. Abraham is the mediator of the seed that will set the world to rights. Genesis 22, 18, God tells Abraham, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So through the line of Abraham will come the son of God, Jesus Christ, the promised offspring of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. So Abraham is mediating the seed or the offspring. Moses, let's pause here for a minute. We'll spend the most amount of time here, and then we'll look at Israel. Moses is a mediator. Now, I just want to point out a few of the aspects of where we see this mediatorial work happening in the, in the, in the story of Moses and in the story of Sinai. First, we see that Moses is the one who's called up the mountain. Moses ascends the mountain. He encounters the glory of the Lord in a way that no one else does. He is given special access, special privilege to be in a very special manifestation of the presence of God. Uh, Exodus 31, 18 through 32, 1 says, and he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking uh, with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Exodus 32, 1, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Moses ascends the mountain to meet with God and descends the mountain to speak to the people on God's behalf. So what was Moses doing on the mountain? Well, he encountered God's mysterious glory in a unique way that no one else at that time was invited into. He received God's law. Exodus 24, 17 says, now the appearance of the glory of the Lord uh, was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. 40 days and 40 nights, Moses is up on the mountain encountering God's glory, receiving God's law. So Moses, Moses ascends the mountain to encounter the glory of the Lord and to hear what God wants to say to his people. He descends the mountain as well. He descends the mountain and immediately encounters Israel's sin. He finds the golden calf. It's, and this is just a sign. Where, the golden calf, where has the gold come from? Right, these were slaves. Where, where did the gold come from? Well, it's the Egyptian gold. It's what they plundered from the Egyptians on their way out of Egypt. This gold had been a sign of their deliverance from a false god, sign of their deliverance. It had been a sign that they were no longer son, uh, slaves, but sons and daughters of the true, powerful God, Yahweh. And what do they do with God's good gifts? Well, they melt them down and turn them into an idol. And there's something for all of us there. When Moses comes down, as the mediator, he implores God on behalf of the people begging the Lord in Exodus 32, verses 11 through 14, turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against our people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self. And it says in Exodus 32, the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So 
it's interesting. Moses is the representative, not just of God to uh, the people of Israel, but Israel uh, on Israel's behalf to the presence of God. Moses implores God. He prays and asks God, please don't destroy these people, even though they have cast you aside for an idol. But Moses doesn't just merely mediate God's forgiveness to Israel by praying on their behalf. He takes part in administrating judgment against them. Because how does this scene end in Exodus 32? Yes, God relents. He doesn't destroy the whole, but he does require them to endure judgment. They melt the calf calf down. They scatter it across the water. It makes Israel drink the golden calf, basically, and takes judgment upon them. So it's an incredible thing that happens. Moses mediates both grace and judgment in this scene. But how does it end in verse 32 of chapter 32? It says this, but now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Now, in all of this, we're seeing a few things about Moses's mediatorial role. We're seeing that it involves ascending and descending. Throughout Exodus, we're going to find Moses drawn into the presence of God in a unique way. It's often ascending Mount Sinai as God descends to meet with Moses, then descending the mountain to speak to the people of God. Moses Moses ascends the mountain to meet with God, yet God must still come down to meet with him. Yet Moses could not bring the people in his ascent with him. Um, Moses is not able to bring the people into this special presence of God. Now, Ephesians 4 will say that there is a mediator, uh, in, uh, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So Moses couldn't bring the people of God into that ascent into the presence of God, but there is a better mediator who can, and that is Jesus Christ. But the point here is that just like Israel did, we too need a mediator to bridge the gap between us and God. Moses played that role for Israel. And Christ plays that role for all of us. So ascent and descent is an aspect of mediatorial work. We also see holiness. The uh, priesthood established in Israel reflects Moses's role as mediator, and holiness is a crucial component of that. Holiness was expected of all the people in Israel, but Israel's mediators were called to another level of holiness. There was a kind of purity and holiness that Israel was expe- uh, that the priest in Israel, including Moses, who's really the first priest of Israel, uh, they were all called to that. Um, so holiness, meeting with God, the mediator meets with God. In Exodus thirty-three, we get a picture of what Moses's meetings with God were like. We'll just read. I'll just read a little. Just a little part of this verse seven we hear now moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp far off from the camp and he called it the tent of meeting and everyone who sought the lord would go out to the tent of meeting which was outside the camp whenever moses went out to the tent all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch moses until he had gone into the tent when moses entered the tent the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. So the meeting with God that Moses experienced and the tent of meeting was very unique. And the tent of meeting, just to clear up any confusion, is not the tabernacle. 
tabernacle is another thing. We'll get to that here in a minute. But the Lord would descend onto either the mountain or the tent of meeting when they were camped at Sinai. And he would meet with Moses. And it says that Moses would speak to God as if face to face. Now, in Exodus 34, we find out that when Moses came down from the mount, his face would be shining, and they would have to veil his face because the glory of God shining in Moses' face scared the people. Now, going to the New Testament, we find out in 2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 18, that we will one day see God with unveiled face and be seen with unveiled face. So what Moses saw in part, we will get to see in whole with an unveiled face. So we see ascent and descent, we see holiness, we see meeting with God. These are all aspects of the mediatorial role, both for Moses and for all other mediators. And then lastly, we see that there's a substitutionary nature for the mediator. Um, to really see this, uh, we got to keep looking at Exodus 33 because there's such a great picture of Moses standing in the gap here. So in Exodus 33, this is after the golden calf, God relents from his destruction, and God tells them in Exodus 33 to leave Sinai. Um, look at verses 1 through 4. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. So God tells them in Exodus 33, 1 through 3, I'm still going to give you the land. I'm not going with you. I'll send an angel in front of you, but I'm not going with you. Now, He's telling them, you're still going to get the land flowing with milk and honey, but look at verse four. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. Wait, so why are the people grieving? Why are they crying out? Because God's told them you can have the land, you can have the place, but you're not going to get my presence. And their response to that is what? Basically to weep, gnashing of teeth, not going to put on their ornaments. They're like, basically like, we're not even going to dress up. They don't want to go. God tells them, I don't want to go with you because I'm afraid that your wickedness will, will force me because of my holiness to consume you. And the people mourn at this. And this is a reminder to us of something here. Um, true people who have really encountered God, when, even when given the opportunity to get everything but God, basically to get all the promises of God, but to not get God, those who truly know God say, no, if I can get everything but God, then I don't want anything. God is truly the only thing that we desire, want, need. It is the greatest gift to be given is God himself, not merely the promises or the gifts that God promises for his people. So how does Moses react? So the people are weeping. They're crying out. We can't imagine going. So look in Exodus 33, 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, this is Moses speaking, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. 
For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And this is what God does. He does go with the people of Israel. But Moses' line there is telling, is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people? You see, in this moment, Moses stands as a mediator on behalf of Israel. And he says to them, the na- we're not distinct in the nations or in the world if you're not with us. The thing that's the most distinguishing thing about us as Israel is that the presence of Yahweh is with us. So if we go into the land and we get everything you've promised, but we don't get you, then guess what? It's not enough because you're really the main thing. You're really the thing that distinguishes us. See, Moses is a faithful mediator because he even tells God in Exodus 32, if you're not going, if you're going to judge the people of Israel, if you're not going to relent from your judgment against them, then judge me. If somebody's going to have to be blotted out of your book, blot me out of your book. Now, Moses did not know what he was asking because Moses couldn't be that sacrifice. There would be one, a mediator, who would be blotted out of the book. There would be one who could stand in sacrificial substitute for the judgment of God against his people, but it was not Moses. Hebrews 8, 1 through 7 says, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. See, Christ could be a great, sure, and steady sacrifice for the people of Israel and for us as well. Moses was merely a shadow of the substitute savior sacrifice that was coming. So Moses is a mediator, but it's not just Moses who's a mediator. Israel's a mediator too. Okay. Israel's a mediator. Israel is called to mediate the presence of God to the world, to be a showcase people. Uh, Michael Goheen in drama of scripture. He says on an international scale, Israel is called to mediate between the Lord and all the nations. Israel is to be a display people a showcase to the world of how being in covenant with Yahweh changes a people. See, Israel was supposed to be a contrast community. They were supposed to go in to the land that God had promised them and to be a faithful demonstration of the character of God, the character of Yahweh. Now, Moses mediated between God and the people, but what you find throughout the Pentateuch, the laws, the rules for worship, prescriptions for buildings, these intricate codes are for how Israel is to live out her distinctiveness among the nations. Israel was about to enter a land full of people groups that worshiped false gods, and the Pentateuchal teachings, the law, are to prepare Israel to live a distinct life of worshiping Yahweh in the face of physical and spiritual hostility. All right. Now, that's a lot. We've talked about the Mount. At, at Mount Sinai, God reminds Israel who they are. He reminds them that they are his people. And with Moses at Mount Sinai, God reminds Israel and Moses of their purpose. The purpose. God has set apart Moses and he set apart Israel to reflect his character to the world around them. Now, this is another good opportunity for a pause and for a break. So if you need to take one, this would be a great time to do it. If not, we're going to keep on going. All right. So here we go. Um, we've talked about the, the mount. We've talked about the man. Now we're talking about the mobile mountain. 
This is the tabernacle. So Exodus 35, really through the end of Deuteronomy. So at the end of Exodus 35, you get the contributions of the tabernacle and the construction of the tabernacle, um, the building of it. And then really after this, we're not going to come back to this period. I know there's a lot that we're about to leave on the table because the next lecture you guys have is on the covenant with David. But like, I mean, just looking at how much is between that, you know, arguably, you know, it's that much in your Bible, you know, it looks like a, you know, it's 200 pages almost. Um, and that's a ton. It's a ton of story. It, it's a long period of time, but we can only cover kind of some of these things at a high level, but I do want to give you a grid for understanding everything that happens between the building of the tabernacle and getting to the, what we call the monarchy period, which begins with Saul and we'll focus on David. So Israel's post Sinai world, like everything after Mount Sinai is meant to be a life of liturgy. It's meant to be a life of liturgy. What is liturgy? Liturgy is public worship that follows a prescribed form. That's what liturgy is. Liturgy literally means work of the people. When we use liturgy in worship settings, we're talking about public worship that follows a prescribed or ordered form. And Israel's post-Sinai life together is supposed to be a life of liturgy. Their lives are supposed to be shaped by a pattern and a ritual that is centered on the object of their worship, which is the presence of God. And at the center of this for Israel is the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is the house of worship in the center of the nomadic people of Israel until they settle in the land at the end of the conquest period and build the temple. So it's a long period of time here. And all that time in between, the tabernacle is the epicenter of Israel's life and liturgy. This tabernacle is where God meets with his people through Moses or through the priest. It's in the center of Israel's camp. Like, I don't mean just like kind of in the center. I mean, when you actually read the layout of the land, of how the, uh, the tents are laid out, of how the people groups, the tribes are laid out in the nomadic group, when they're like settling down, when they're putting up their tents, the tabernacle is in the exact center of the entire camp. And most of Exodus, after God's interaction with them at Sinai, really just concerns instructions regarding God's dwelling in the midst of the people. So let me just give you Trimper Longman on this. He's an Old Testament scholar. The center of the camp, according to ancient Near Eastern tradition, was the place for the king's tent. Since God was king of Israel, his tent rightly was in the center. When the tent was taken down and Israel was on the march, the ark, which was located in the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle, led the way, just as a Near Eastern king would lead his army into battle. So by placing the tabernacle in the middle of the camp, God is placing his people in constant relationship to his presence. Like if the, if the center of the solar system is the sun, the center of Israel's life was the tabernacle. It was the presence of God. Everything orbited around that. Now, when you read the rest of the Pentateuch, the rest of the first five books of the Old Testament, you might wonder, why are there such specific laws? about who can wear what, when some people can go into the tabernacle when they can't, how to cook food, how to not cook food, what food you could eat, what food you couldn't eat, what you could drink, what you couldn't drink, who you could talk to, who you couldn't talk to, where you could go on the Sabbath, how far you could go on the Sabbath, um, what kind of clothes you could wear, how, how to build an altar. All of those laws you find in the Pentateuch. And you might wonder, um, 
aren't these laws arbitrary? They're so specific. Like God, uh, God is prescribing laws that are so detailed and fixed. Why? This is sometimes a, a, an objection that's given against Christianity. Somebody will go, well, look at the laws in the Pentateuch. Um, if you're following the laws in the Pentateuch, you can't eat shrimp. Uh, you're not supposed to eat pork, but why would you hold to some of these laws and not some of the other laws? Now, you can ask me that question on the Zoom call, and I'd be happy to answer it, but it fundamentally misunderstands the law. Like, when people read these first five books of the Old Testament and go, man, this law is too specific. Once you start to realize what God's doing here, you read this law and go, oh my gosh, there are so many things I wish you would have said <laughs> about it. So let me just maybe paint a picture for you here. Um, let's imagine that I'm at your house or your apartment or whatever, and a dog walks in, okay? And it's not your dog. A dog just walks in the room. We're sitting in the living room. A dog walks in. You don't know the dog. You, do you adjust your behavior? Yeah, you probably do. Like, you probably do adjust your behavior if a dog walks in that's not your dog. Where did this dog come from? I wonder what I should do. Is there a collar on this dog? You might change the way you speak. We might change where we're sitting in the room. We might change what we're doing. We might measure our movements a little bit. Like you wouldn't want to startle a dog you didn't know. You would change your behavior a little bit. Now let's imagine the same thing. Me and you, we're sitting in your living room. But now the animal that walks in is not a dog. It's a lion. It's a fully grown lion. Do you change your behavior? 100%. You change everything. You measure every movement. You're not just a little startled. You're very startled. And now every little thing you do seems like it's incredibly significant. What's different? What's different between the dog and the lion? They're both animals. The difference is power. That's the difference. The lion is more powerful and you know it. So everything you do now in that room is different. Maybe some of what you did when the dog walked in was different, but now when the lion's there, everything is different. When God takes up residence in the midst of his people, a lion has entered the living room. Everything has to change now. It is not the Garden of Eden. It is a world broken by sin. They are not uh, creatures who are fundamentally good. They are creatures who are broken. And because of that, every aspect of their life now has to be lived in relationship to the presence of God that dwells in their midst. You see, God is absolutely transcendent and holy, but he has chosen to be near his people. And this means that God's people can be near to God's presence, but this nearness will come with a life of holiness, worship, and reverence. God delights to live near his people. And when God is in the midst of his people, everything now has to change. T. Desmond Alexander says it this way, given that holiness emanates from God, the Holy One, his presence amid the people brings into their daily lives an important new dynamic because their God is holy. The people themselves must be holy. So these laws that we read about, they're not arbitrary, they're specific, and they're specific because God's presence is now in the midst of his people. And when you consider that reality, you start to realize, wait a second, yeah, if there's a line in the room, everything matters now. And if the presence of God is in the midst of his people, yeah, it does matter how clean my hands are. It does matter what I say. It does matter what I don't say. It does matter what I do. It does matter what I don't do. All of these things matter. Why? Because the holy God is in your midst.
Now, that was true for Israel with the tabernacle, but it's also true for us, isn't it? Don't we dwell in the midst of God? Don't we dwell in the presence of God? Well, actually, unlike Israel, we don't have to be close to a physical tent to be near to the presence of God, for the Christian is indwelt with the presence of God by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. See, the law codes and the Pentateuch reflect God's missional and ethical agenda for his people. Israel is called to live as a showcase people, a contrast community, to be the people of God in the sight of the world. Their liturgy, their life of liturgy, their life of worship in Deuteronomy is demonstrated as public participation. Referencing Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9, Michael Goheen says this in Drama of Scripture, the Torah claims both family life and public life. Upon leaving the house, one sees God's words of instruction written on the, great, on the gate. Upon returning, one sees them again written on the door of the house. All of their life is meant to be one of worship where they are constantly having before them that the fact is they live in the presence of God and that all of their life matters. And you might wonder, well, like, doesn't all of this just turn into a ritual? And isn't ritual just a dead and hollow habit? Isn't this just ritualistic law-based worship? Well, it doesn't have to be. Underneath the liturgical life is a heart that is on fire for the object of worship that is full of imagination and love and affection for that which one has come to believe is the most beautiful and worthy thing to worship. All of us live lives of ritual. The only question is what do your rituals and habits say about the object of your worship? And for Israel, their life of liturgy was supposed to demonstrate that the God of Israel was different from the false gods of the world and that subsequently the people of Israel were different from the people of the world. The main point of the tabernacle is that it's a portable sanctuary, God's personal residence among his covenant people. This is what Michael Goheen says. Some of you might be saying, hold on a second, aren't we called the temple of God? We are. We are. What was a place has now been decentralized into a people. We, the church, have become a mobile Mount Sinai, like the tabernacle. You and I are indwelt by the presence of God, which means you, like Israel, are called to live out every inch of your life as if it is happening in the presence of God, because it is, because it is. Everything matters. So in light of that, let's answer this question. How do we practice our liturgy publicly? How do we do that? Covenant participants have God dwelling within their midst. Christians have God dwelling in the midst of their heart and their lives. What does this mean for us? Well, a few things. Like Israel, you and I see that the distinctive feature of our existence is the reality that God's presence is among us. Because of this, we can be confident to enter foreign lands that are not yet our home with the proclamation that every inch of the world belongs to God. It means we can go into the dark and desolate places of our world and we can live out an ethic of life. Why? Because God's presence is in our midst. It means every inch of our life, how we spend our money, what we think about sex, how we talk, how we speak, how we treat others, whether we gossip or whether we, or whether we avoid slander, whether we sin or whether we don't, every inch of our life matters to God, our jobs, our vocations, our callings, our relationships, everything happens quorum Deo in the presence of God. And because of this, because of this, there's a seriousness that we take to our lives 
as we pursue holiness together, not to earn God's grace, but because he's given it freely in salvation. We, like Israel, we see that our obedience to God's command advances his purposes over the world, and it's accompanied by blessing. See, our relationship with God is not secured by our obedience, but our relationship with God is cultivated through obedience. So we can be confident to follow a countercultural Lord and to be a countercultural people because we know that the righteous way of God is better and we walk in it. Obedience matters. It doesn't matter for our salvation, but it does matter for our sanctification and our continued growth with God. Lastly, we like Israel, we tell God's story of faithfulness to the next generation. Deuteronomy 6 is a passage that we often think about when we think about relaying the story of God, but we are called to be a showcase people, inviting people, the stranger, the sojourner, our child, our parents, um, our spouses, our friends, our neighbors into the Christian story and into participation in a life of worshipful liturgy as we follow God's way of righteousness as an act of worship unto the Lord. So when we think about Sinai, we think about the mount, we think about the man, and we think about the mobile mountain. We realize that at Sinai, God is telling the people who they are. He's telling them that his presence is going to take up midst in their lives. He's telling them what their purpose is in the world, and he's promising them yet again that he's going to bring them to a place that he promised to their father Abraham. The life of God's people revolves around the presence of God in their midst, and Sinai is a reminder of that for Israel and for us. And because of it, because of the presence of God in our lives, everything now matters in a way that it didn't before. Hope you've enjoyed the lecture. We'll meet on Tuesday night via Zoom. The link for that call was in the email that also had the link for this video and audio. We hope you will really take this seriously. Um, if you didn't get a chance to read um, much of Exodus, that's totally fine. I would encourage you before our lecture, read Exodus 32 through 34, a couple of chapters, and it can really help you start to visualize and cross this imaginative gap that exists for Sinai. Many people find themselves confused with the post-Sinai story. It just doesn't, it doesn't feel the same way to us, um, but it's an incredibly important part of the narrative, and it's crucial for understanding the flow of the rest of the story of the Bible. Look forward to seeing you on Tuesday night for our Zoom Q&A. Come with some great questions. You always do. Uh, hope you enjoyed it. Grace and peace. Talk to you later.